At the service this morning, which was a great service at 6 o'clock, I'm not uh, often outside at a service at 6 o'clock in the morning, but it was wonderful. My daughter reminded me, however, that we had forgotten to say that there, so we're making up for it now. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, If you would open up your Bibles, please, we're going to uh, read some Scripture. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 53. That's a very powerful passage that was written 700-some years before Jesus was born, but you will recognize it as it's about Him. So you're in Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to read verses 4 through 6 in just a moment. And then we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 15. This passage in Isaiah 53 speaks about the Messiah and speaks about him centuries in advance and gives details and descriptions of things that are going to happen to him. And um, it's amazing when you read it. And if you read it for the first time and I didn't tell you where it was from, you would probably think it's from one of the Gospels. You'd probably think it's from the New Testament. And yet it was written so far in advance. But it's not those details necessarily that I'm interested in, but it's, it's more the message behind these verses. As you're in Isaiah chapter 53, and we're looking at verses 4 through 6. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then to the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Great chapter in Paul's writings here on the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is a long chapter. We're not going to read all of it. Just want to read a few verses here. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as risen from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man 
has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Let's pray. Father, we come to this great opportunity in our calendar, in our year, in our services together when we get to focus on the resurrection of Christ. We get to focus on this great hope that is ours, that He was raised from the dead, and thus we may be raised from the dead, that He uh, conquered death even when our sin had been placed upon Him And so we may have newness of life in Him. And so we rejoice in that. And this morning, I pray that you would help us to understand better why the resurrection of Christ matters and why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday and why this is such a big deal in our faith. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to hear your word, to hear what you have for us, that we would hear it deep in our hearts, that we would have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would know what you're speaking to us about the gospel, about the forgiveness that is ours in Christ and in Christ alone. Father, I pray that you'd help us to uh, set aside those things that would distract us. We're excited perhaps about Easter dinner later on. We're uh, excited about time with family but help us to be here and now. Help us to be focused on your word and to hear you as you speak to us even today. We ask that you would do so by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I thought by leaving this water up here, it would be safe and not be kicked over. (laughs) And it wasn't kicked over, so I guess that that was a win. (laughs) So we're here this morning to celebrate Resurrection Sunday, right? And we all know that Resurrection Sunday is not about bunny rabbits, right? Though I don't mind the chocolate kind, and, you know, I'm not against eating those. It's not about Easter eggs. It's not about any of those things. It's about the resurrection of Christ. And so we celebrate that when we come together. And this is, a, this is a very high day, as it were, in our calendar. This time of year when we get to remind ourselves and think about the resurrection. And that's, that's not just because we find it interesting. Or we think it's somehow important that we think about it out there. But rather it's because our faith, our Christian faith, is at its core miraculous. It's about the supernatural working of God in this natural order. That the God who made us and is completely other from us sent his son to be one of us, entered into this world. Our faith is about what Christ has done, and what he has done is miraculous. And so this time of year when we come to Resurrection Sunday and we we celebrate this time of year, We're not just celebrating some Judeo-Christian ethic that we have in common. We're not just celebrating tradition. We're celebrating the miraculous work of God in raising Jesus from the dead. And so that's why it's a big deal, and our faith depends upon it. 
We're going to see, and we already read in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul pointing out some things there that are in the balance. If resurrection of the dead doesn't actually happen, then there's a lot on the line. And so as we come this morning, we want to keep in mind that our faith is about God's supernatural working in this order. And in the entire Christian hope stands or falls with the resurrection of Christ. The entire Christian hope stands or falls with Jesus' resurrection. And so, first of all, what is the Christian hope? What are we even talking about? I said we're not talking about an ethic. We're not talking about just a description of how you should uh, make decisions in your life or morals or something like that. We're talking about something that's much larger. And so if you'll go back to Isaiah 53, we're going to read that one more time and think about the imagery that's portrayed there in that chapter. This was the expectation from hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came of what he was going to do. In these verses, we see the true Christian hope, what we stand on, what we stand for. And so I read again from Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4, 5, and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So what is the Christian hope? Well, first of all, it's about our sin placed on Christ. Our sin placed on Christ. We're going to see imagery here in this passage that's important for us to understand the entire Bible. And that is the, the, the idea of sacrifice, biblical sacrifice, and what it was for, what it was to accomplish. And there were all kinds of sacrifices, and I'm not going to go through them all, but, but for a sin offering, the essence of it is that an individual had sin, and the Bible says we all have sin. There is no one who does right all the time and has never sinned. We all have sin, and so that sin of the individual would be placed upon, symbolically placed upon an animal that was going to be sacrificed in his place. The idea was a transference of the guilt of my sin upon this creature, whether it was a bull or a lamb or a goat, my sin placed upon that creature. And so there's this idea of transference. And of course, that's largely in the Old Testament symbolic in a sense, because we read in the New Testament that actually the blood of bulls and goats, them paying a penalty, does not count for a human's sin. But there's this symbolic concept, and they would actually lay their hands upon the head of the animal, thus transferring the guilt to that animal. 
And that is at the core of what our Christian hope is, that, that we don't transfer our guilt for our sin upon some animal that is insufficient. We transfer our guilt, our sin, upon Christ. And that's what this passage here is talking about, that our sin, our guilt is placed upon Him. And so if we understand that imagery, we can understand what comes next, and that is that our sin is punished in Christ. So why was that sin transferred to the animal? Why was it transferred to that bull? It was so that the bull could be killed, thus paying the penalty for my sin. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, and I have sinned, and you have sinned. And so we deserve death. And so the symbolism here, what's going on in the Old Testament, what's pictured in the transfer of sin to an animal and then the animal being put to death actually takes place in Christ. And that's the imagery here in Isaiah chapter 53 that our sins are placed upon him and then he was pierced for our transgressions that Jesus would be put to death, that he would be the one who would die and pay the penalty of death that you deserve and that I deserve. And so our hope is our sins placed upon Christ and those sins being punished in Christ. And then finally, our proof would be in the resurrection of Christ. When we read in the New Testament, we read in the Gospels, Jesus talked a lot about the fact that he was going to die. The, John the Baptist referred to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, how does the Lamb take away sin? By being put to death. And so the consistent message that you read throughout the Gospels is Jesus' expectation and telling his disciples that he was going to be put to death. Well, of course, that became true and they saw that happen. But we're all going to die also. And we could make all kinds of boasts as well. We could promise things that we're going to do. Jesus said that not only would he die, but he would be raised on the third day. And so his disciples, who should have been expecting that, they should have been waiting for his resurrection, they were, they were actually so disheartened and downcast when he was killed that they kind of just scattered and they, they, they didn't really think about that part. We don't see them waiting for the third day to come. We see them mourning. And so Jesus had made these promises. He had said he was going to do things. And then he said he was going to die. And he said he was going to be raised again. Well, he made those promises and then he died. But if he didn't come back to life, if he wasn't raised up again, how do we know that his promises will be kept? How can we know that he's going to keep his word and that the sin that, that we have placed upon him, the guilt that we have placed upon him and him punished for our sin, how do we know that's not just make-believe? Wishful thinking on our part. Maybe it's, it's us, uh, you know, shirking our duties because we've done wrong and, and I really don't want to pay for that, so I'm going to pretend, I'm going to say that Jesus paid that penalty for me so that I can feel like I'm getting off scot-free. Well, that's what's at stake if Jesus is not raised from the dead. He made those promises, but did he keep them? It becomes a philosophical question. It becomes a point to debate. It actually becomes worse than that because 
He said he would rise again, and if indeed he does not rise again, can we place our faith in a liar? Is he, is he confused? Was he delusional? Well, all of those sorts of questions hang in the balance about his resurrection, whether he's going to be raised. And so the sin that we have placed upon him as the Lamb of God and him being slain, how do we know God took the deal? And so we turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We move on to our second point. If that's what we're counting on, if we're counting on Jesus having, ta having taken our sin upon him and paid that penalty for us, do you feel that weight? Do you feel the anticipation and the expectation? Is he going to be vindicated? Am I going to be vindicated? Is my faith in him going to be vindicated? Or did I trust in him and really I shouldn't have because he didn't keep his word? That's what hangs in the balance we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Some of those in Corinth, they uh, believed for one reason or another that we could discuss another time that, that people are not raised from the dead. They believed in Jesus, and they believed in his resurrection, but, but they, didn't, they didn't think that anyone else would be raised because people aren't raised from the dead. And so the Apostle Paul writes to them, and we pick up again in chapter 12, excuse me, chapter 15, verse 12, in, in that context, with them thinking people are not raised from the dead, here's what Paul says. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished if in Christ we hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so Paul points out several things that hang in the balance if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus was not actually raised from the dead. And what he's saying is Jesus became one of us and God raised him from the dead. And the Corinthians apparently believed that, but then there was a disconnect in their mind. They thought no one else would be raised from the dead. Perhaps they believed in some spiritual existence after uh, we died or something like that, but they didn't believe in actual resurrection. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, Jesus became one of us. And if we're not going to be raised, if there's, if there's no such thing as resurrection from the dead, then even Jesus wasn't raised from the dead because he's one of us. And if we lose Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we lose all of these things. And so he points out, five things that kind of hang in the balance. And he says, first of all, what hangs in the balance is whether the Christian message is useless or uniquely powerful. Because again, our message, the Christian message, the gospel, is not an ethic. It's not about 
morality. It is about the miraculous work of Christ. The miraculous raising of Jesus from the dead. It's about the miraculous. And if that miraculous core of the Christian message didn't happen, then our message is useless. It doesn't accomplish what it says it accomplishes. That's if the resurrection didn't happen. But if the resurrection did happen, then it becomes uniquely powerful. Because this message is about new life in Christ. This message is about life being given to the dead. And so it becomes uniquely power, powerful. And so that's what's at stake. He said the second thing that hangs in the balance is whether the Christian faith is empty or if it's effectual. If the heart of the Christian message is a miracle, the supernatural working of God, and if that heart of the message is a lie, Jesus didn't really rise on the third day, then the whole message is empty and worthless, and our faith is empty and worthless. What's it good for? What is our faith good for if Jesus was not raised from the dead? But if the tomb really was opened, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, then the Christian faith is powerful to change a person from the inside out. The Christ who was dead and now alive again can indeed give life to those who were dead in their sins and deserve death because of their sins. That's what's at stake. Is the Christian faith empty or is it effectual? Paul says, thirdly, depending upon the resurrection, Christians either remain in sin or they are redeemed. That image of us taking our, our sin, the guilt of our sin, and seeing that placed on Christ and then executed in Christ so that that penalty of death, that penalty of God's wrath that we deserve because of what, we's do, what we have done is placed upon Him and God punishes it there. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, we still retain our sin. We still remain in our sin despite the hope that we placed in Christ. If he's not raised from the dead, he didn't actually pay that penalty. God didn't actually accept his payment for us. And you remain in your sin. Or, if he was raised, if our sin has been placed upon him, and that punishment that we deserve placed upon him and God has executed it in him and raised Jesus from the dead, then instead of remaining in our sin, we instead are redeemed. That penalty has been paid for us. We are now free in Christ from that penalty of death that we deserve. We are no longer children of wrath, but we become children of God because of what he's done. That's what hangs in the balance with the resurrection Fourth truth that hangs in that balance is whether Christians who have died have received penalty or pardon. These Christians who spent their lives hoping in this sacrifice of Christ, hoping that Jesus paid that penalty for them, and they, they trusted that that's what he had done, that God had executed the penalty for their sin in Christ. But if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, they would be in for a rude awakening when they died and found that the penalty still remained and they still had to pay it. It was still on their account. 
And they would have to answer for God and they would have to bear that wrath from God. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, they receive pardon. They, they, they get the full reward of that penalty having been paid in Christ. And so they stand before God pardoned, righteous in His sight, able to call Him Father, able to be in His presence, in His presence, who is holy. That's what's at stake. And fifthly, what hangs in the balance is whether Christians are most pitiable or most pertinent. Have we wasted our lives? If the resurrection hasn't happened, then we have, we have agreed to this thing that actually at its root is a lie. We, we thought we placed our sins upon Him. We thought they were dealt with in Him. We thought they were punished in Him. We thought we were in, free and clear before God because of what Jesus had done. And we've lived our lives accordingly. But if He wasn't raised from the dead, we've lived our lives according to a lie. And we are of all people with this misplaced hope to be most pitied. But if He was raised... If the tomb really did open, if Jesus really was raised from the dead, brought to life again as he said he would be, then our message is the most pertinent message ever. Then our lives are to be looked at, are to be observed. Our words are to be listened to by the world. They should be heeded. The most important message, the most important truth, and the most important reality in all of existence is at the core of what we believe. Jesus himself paying that penalty for us and being raised from the dead, indicating that God had accepted that deal. Well, of course, there were some who saw Jesus raised from the dead. He appeared to Cephas. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 others at one time, most of whom were still alive at the time Paul was writing this letter. If Jesus, the risen Christ, truly appeared to James and to all the apostles, then the Christian message becomes very, very real and the most significant message that there is. But there was one more. Let me read on in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. How did Paul know that? How did Paul know he had been raised from the dead? Well, because he says earlier in the chapter, after talking about him having appeared to James and to all the apostles, it says in verse 8 of our chapter, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul himself was a witness of the resurrected Christ. He believed it, but he had also seen it. Along with the other apostles, along with the 500, along with these people, he knew and could testify. And just as was said earlier, not only could he testify, but there were people around who could call him a liar if it was not true. Those other people who had seen, if Paul was misrepresenting them, 
they could step forward and say, yeah, Paul, you're, you're being a little too bold with this. He actually wasn't raised for the dead. We, we just had a vision or a dream. Those people were still alive and could put the lie to his words, except that his words were true. Because he is risen. He is risen. This, this image of us seeing our sins placed upon him and that guilt transferred to him and then seeing him pay that penalty like the animal in the Old Testament. But whereas the animal in the Old Testament couldn't fully and finally and utterly pay that penalty because he's just an animal, he's not one of us, instead it was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who was put to death, who could stand in our place, who was one of us, who could bear that guilt, who could bear that sin and then bear the wrath of God for us so that we don't have to bear that wrath. And God really did raise him from the dead, thus indicating God took the deal. God, God accepted the payment that Jesus had made for, for the sins of every believer. And so the fact that he is risen means that this miraculous core, this miraculous center of the Christian message is true. And so today, our, our message, what we're celebrating today is not just something historical that happened back then. Because Jesus is still alive. He's still raised from the dead and death has no, no uh, strength, no power over him. No claim on him. He is seated at the right hand of the Father even now interceding on behalf of his children. He is alive. And so the core of the Christian message, miraculous though it is, is true. And so our message is the most important message that can be believed upon. It's the most important message that we can communicate. It's the mo most important message that there is in the world. Because imagine, imagine this scene where you have you've taken your sin, you've taken the guilt of your sin, and, and the guilt of your sin makes you worthy of death. Makes me worthy of death. Eternal punishment before God because of my rebellion against him. And we take that sin and guilt and we put it on Jesus and we see him executed. And then we wait. And we wait and we see, is, is it acceptable to God? Is it enough for God? W could Jesus actually be a substitute for me? Could he actually pay that penalty? And so we wait. And the stone was rolled away. And he was brought to life again. The Lord raised him up. And so that's why we say on Resurrection Sunday, He is risen. He is risen that's the message for us. It's because the core is about the miraculous working of God. And if God miraculously worked in raising Christ from the dead, and He did, then for everyone who puts their faith in Christ. Everyone who sees their sin placed upon him and executed in him, everyone who trusts him for that receives new life also. Beginning already, even now, Paul says that for everyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation already and will be raised to newness of life after death. That's the message. And so 
for, for each of us here this morning, that's what we need to hold on to, and that's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. We are talking about new life in Christ. We are talking about the reality, the truth that God really did miraculously take a dead man, Jesus, and raise him so that he's alive. And because he has new life, because he has resurrection life in him, because he actually is the resurrection and the life, he can give that to you. And so if there are some here this morning who, who don't know Christ, who have, never, who have never made that exchange, have never taken their own guilt for their sin and seen it placed upon Christ and seen it executed in Christ, if they've never trusted in Him to be the full and final and effective payment for their sin before God, you can do that right now. You can do that right now. And so I, I urge you to trust Christ in that way. You, you, have, you have the option of paying the penalty for your own sin. You can bear that wrath of God, and it'll take eternity to bear it. An eternity of dying, but with no death at the end of it. Or you can see that guilt placed upon Christ. You can see that punishment executed upon Him in your place. Isaiah 53 says that's the reason that he came, so that by his wounds, by his stripes, we can be healed. We can be given new life. And so I urge you that if you've not done that, if you don't trust Christ in that way, do that even now. Do that even now. And then tell a Christian about it. Tell somebody that Jesus has given you new life. This is Resurrection Sunday, and this could be the day that you receive new life. I'm going to pray in just a moment, and then after, uh, after I'm done praying, uh, there will be a family up here who will be happy to pray with you. Maybe it's about struggles in your life. Maybe it's about things you want to report that God has done that are glorious. Maybe you want to trust Christ today. They would be overjoyed to be able to do that with you. So if you want to pray, come on up, and they will pray with you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this message. I thank you that, that Christianity is not about uh, primarily about how we live a life. Of course, it affects the way we live a life. It, it, it affects our whole understanding of reality and what's important. And those things are true, but it's not primarily about that. It's primarily about what you have done to redeem your people. And that redemption is tied up, is bound up in the resurrection of Christ. And so we rejoice that you did, in fact, raise Jesus from the dead, that, in fact, he is alive. He is even now seated at your right hand. He is interceding on our behalf. We have a living Savior. We serve a living Savior. And that living Savior can give us resurrection life, new life in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would look to Christ to find full and complete forgiveness of their sins, that the righteousness of Christ would be applied to them and they could stand before you as one of the redeemed at peace with God because Jesus bore the penalty for their sin. So I pray that you would do that even this morning. And for those of us who know you, Father, I pray that you would work in us, that our eyes would be fixed on you and we would rejoice in the resurrection of Christ, that we would rejoice in this new life that we have that's not something we, we manufactured, we conjured up, or, or we thought of, but has been given to us by the risen Christ. Father, be glorified.
May Christ dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen and amen. One last time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you all, and you're dismissed. <laughs>